pray that you would visit with us in the preaching of the word. That you would enlighten our minds and address and change our hearts. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do your divine work in us. Lord, give us the joy that only you can give. We're longing that you would be here with us. Come now by the preaching of your word and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What's good, ARC? Yeah, everybody all right? Good. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm Pastor T. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the entire family, I want to welcome you this morning. In fact, I don't feel like I've gotten all my welcoming out. So let's just take a minute, wherever you are, stand up, pop up, greet somebody, welcome them this morning, thank them for coming. If you are new to Christian worship services, let me just direct your attention to the first page of the bulletin, the inside of the bulletin, and tell you what's been going on and, and what we're about to do now. Uh, basically what's been going on is a conversation in the service where we gather together and first speak to God in song. We, we praise him for who he is. And uh, so we sang, bind us together, you alone can rescue. But really, no, no worship can be rendered to God that he doesn't call for. You can't just go to God on your own terms in any way. And so we always have in our service what we call a call to worship. And that's where we read a part of God's word, and God speaking through his word calls us to worship him. And we reply with songs and prayers of various sorts. So we sang those three songs and had a pastoral prayer. And we reply by offering ourselves and offering what we have back to God from whom we got it in the first place. Then God speaks. And that's the section where we come and we hear him speak to us again in the preaching of his word. And and that's what we're about to do is to give attention to God, to ask him to speak, and to ask him to give us hearing that that we can understand and receive what he has to say. We are continuing a series this morning in in spiritual warfare, what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, And this morning we're going to be spending time in 1 John chapter 5 or excuse me, chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. And as you turn there in your Bibles, and if your neighbor needs help finding in the Bible, don't be shy, just reach over and help, or ask if you can help, actually. Ask first, then reach over and help. Uh, <laughs> just, just help, and uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me pray for us. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that we can gather before you to hear you speak through your word. We are reminded this morning that we've been listening to all kinds of voices this week. Bosses and co-workers, entertainers and newscasters, neighbors and friends, even been listening to our own voice in in our head, talking to ourselves sometimes. The voice we most need to hear is yours. Cut through the noise, cut through the distraction, cut through the other voices, cut through the voice in our own heads, and let us hear a word from you this morning. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Quicken us and build us up in your most holy truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
So as I was saying a moment ago, if you're joining us this morning, um, you have jumped in sort of at the beginning of a new sermon series uh, on the topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, You may or may not have realized it, but there's a war raging all around us. In fact, there's a war raging inside of us. It's a war between God and his people on the one hand, and what the Bible describes as our three enemies on the other hand, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, by the world, the Bible means the sort of system of thinking and behaving and believing that is typical to people who do not know God and, in fact, live contrary to God's rule. That by the flesh, the Bible means that part of us that's sometimes called our sin nature. It's referring to that part of us that, that too cooperates with the world in rebellion against God. And by the devil, the Bible means the devil. A fallen angel who has rebelled against God and took with him a third of all angels in rebellion against God and who now, well, he delights to try to destroy people and God's people in particular. Now, we live in a highly materialistic world. We live in a world that's anti-supernatural. And that's part of Satan's trick. Someone said it's his greatest trick to convince us that he does not exist. And in this world, things are arrayed against God's people. But here's the thing. We're in this war, but we've already won the war. We have won the war because the Lord Jesus Christ conquered Satan, crucified our flesh, and has overcome the world. He redeemed the world on the cross in Calvary where he died for our sins, where he took the punishment that we deserved. When he was buried and raised three days later, he had conquered death and hell and Satan and sin all in that decisive act. So Christian, even though the world rages... We don't fight like there's some prospect that we could lose. Not the war. There may be some battles that we could lose. Because these enemies, though defeated, they haven't yet surrendered. There's no peace between us and the world. There's no peace between us and our sin nature. There's no peace between us and Satan. The Bible says friendship with the world is hostility to God. The Bible says that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. The two are at odds with each other. And the Bible tells us that Satan prowls about looking for someone to devour. But it instructs us that we should resist him and he will flee for us. So the fight continues, but we have won. Now in the fight, the Lord graciously gives us weapons of various sorts. A couple of weeks ago, we were also in 1 John chapter 5, and we talked about the importance of faith in overcoming the world. Now we're sort of jumping back to the beginning of the book, and we're going to see here another weapon essential to us standing in victory and enjoying the victory that we have in Christ, specifically spiritual fellowship, spiritual fellowship. Just as no one can please God without faith, no person can walk with God without fellowship. 
No person can walk with God without spiritual fellowship. With God's help this morning, we want to consider three questions and answer them from this text. Number one, what is spiritual fellowship? What is spiritual fellowship? We'll see that in verses one to four. The second question we want to ask and answer is, what does this spiritual fellowship have to do with spiritual warfare? What's the relevance of spiritual fellowship to spiritual warfare? We're going to see that in verses 5 to 10. And then the third thing we want to ask and answer is, what should we do in order to enjoy the benefits of spiritual fellowship? What is spiritual fellowship? What does it have to do with spiritual warfare? And what should we do to enjoy participating in this fellowship? All from 1 John chapter 1. Look there with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the first question we want to ask and answer this morning is, what is spiritual fellowship? Fellowship is one of those Christian words that gets used a lot that probably sounds a little weird to people who are not Christians. It's also a word that gets used with a a lot of different associations. So we have a men's fellowship and a women's fellowship. We fellowship over a meal or in our small groups. Certain outings like bowling or skiing get called fellowship. And that's all good. That's fine. We we know what we mean by that. Those are activities and opportunities and occasions where we gather together with other people and have some social interaction. But I want to argue for a rather specific and narrow definition of spiritual fellowship from this text this morning. Here's a definition. I want to show it to you from verses 1 to 4, how I get it. Spiritual fellowship is what happens when, number one, the Word of God, number two, 
gives the life of God. Number three, to the people of God together. Number four, for their joy in God. So spiritual fellowship is what happens when the Word of God gives the life of God to the people of God together for their joy in God. Notice how John starts in verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. John starts here with his eyewitness testimony. He says, listen, there's some stuff that I've seen and some stuff I've heard firsthand and some things I've put my hands on. I'm not writing to you as someone who heard something from somebody else. I'm not writing to you as someone who has made up a fancy theory. What I want to address to you now, he calls here the word of life. And he's an eyewitness to that word of life. Notice how he, how he continues here. He, he says in verse 2, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. So twice in verses 2 and 3, John goes from being an eyewitness to a preacher. I done seen some stuff. Let me preach some stuff. I have witnessed some things. Let me tell you about it. Now it's interesting. The word of the word here is not just eyewitness testimony, but notice it's a person. You see what he says at the end of verse one. I want to tell you some things concerning the word of life. Then he says there in verse two, the life was made manifest. Notice at the end of verse 2, he said, this same life was with the Father and has been made manifest to us. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the fact that the Son of God existed before all things with God the Father. And at the appointed time, God the Father sent his Son into the world. And in sending his son into the world, Jesus takes on flesh and Jesus now reveals or manifests or shows us life. He is the life. He is the light that lights all men. And so John here is concerned that we would understand that the word is connected with the life. The word of Christ transmits the life of Christ. John is very fond of this. He, in his story about Jesus' life, what we call the, the gospel of John, he uses this same imagery of light and life all throughout the gospels. But let me, let me give you a couple of places. In, in John chapter 6, beginning around verse 33, John records there Jesus interacting with some people where Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. That, that he has come into the world and, and he is that life that nourishes those who believe. And near the end of that chapter, John chapter 6, verse 63, uh, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then he says this, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
And, and pretty soon when Jesus says that, there, there are people who had been following him who turn away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, are you going to leave me too? Will you abandon me too? And Peter gets it. It's one of those times where Peter speaks and, and absolutely nails it. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus himself would draw the connection between his words and his person in places like John 14, 6, where he says there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when he's praying to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3, you remember in that prayer how he defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's the word of God which reveals the life of God in the Son of God. And it's by believing that word that we receive that life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this life which we receive individually is meant to be shared together. Notice now, this life comes to the people of God together. Verse 3, John says, I'm proclaiming all of this to you so that you too may have, there's our word, fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's this goal of bringing people into fellowship with the church, with the apostles and their teaching, and by doing so, bringing them into fellowship with God Himself and Jesus His Son. That goal is what's driving John's preaching. I don't want you out there cut off by yourself. I want you in here, koinonia, sharing, fellowshipping, partnering with us in the truth and partnering in life with God. That's meant to be shared together. True spiritual fellowship is, is a group thing, not an individual thing. Christianity is a family business, not a solo sport. I mean, if you have a party with other Christians and you break open the word, guess who crashes the party? The father and the son. They show up wherever the word is spoken. And when we fellowship around the Bible, it's never just us Christians in the room. God is with us and, and we share together in his life. The Word of God gives the life of God to the people of God together. And notice in verse 4, it's for our joy. John writes there, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The word translated our there could be also translated your. So you may have a version that says, so your joy. Either way is fine. If we translate it as our, then John refers to the apostles having their joy completed. But we can't imagine that their joy is complete if they're not actually seeing the church thriving in the same things that they teach. Or if you translate it as your, then it refers to the church's joy being complete. But in either case, it seems that, that both parties who enter fellowship with the saints and fellowship with the Father and the Son, the goal of that fellowship is the happiness of the Christian. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence, referring to God, there is fullness 
of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Perhaps you're here in 1 John 1 verse 4 or Psalm 16 and 11 that you think to yourself, how do I remain in God's presence? If that's where joy is, then that's where I want to be, but, but how do I get there? And maybe your thoughts turn a little mystical. You think that remaining in God's presence is about your personally and privately having some kind of experience or special feeling or special season of flowing in the things of God. Beloved, achieving Psalm 1611 and 1 John 1.4 is simpler and more concrete than mysticism. We don't have to work up special feelings. All we need to do is gather together and share the word of life. And the Father and Son show up and joy is ours. And in fact, the text says our spiritual fellowship together is the means, it's the way in which our joy is made complete, not partial, not fading, but full and complete. The word-based fellowship of the saints leads to the joy-based fellowship with God. So let's stop making the Christian life mystical and difficult. Let's get with God's people and open the word and expect the life of Christ then to be stirred in us by the word and by his people. It's simple. And there are really two mistakes for us to avoid when it comes to spiritual fellowship. The, the first mistake is trying to build spell, spiritual fellowship on non-spiritual things. I'm glad I got an amen corner. We trying to fellowship with y'all. Now, go on a skiing trip with the men. Amen. Go, go bowling the next time there's bowling. Go to Friday night fellowship. Attend your small group meetings and attend Thursday night Bible study. But don't let skiing supplant the word. And, and, and don't let basketball or bowling or uh, your small group become an activity independent of the word that you are hoping will produce the effect of the word. It won't. Life comes from the Word of God. Nothing can give us the life of Christ except the Word of Christ. So let's not make the mistake of trying to build spiritual fellowship on non-spiritual things. Number two, here's the second mistake. The second mistake is trying to fellowship with God without fellowshipping with God's people. If you avoid the fellowship of the saints you might as well be playing hide-and-seek with God. If you avoid gathering together with God's people around God's Word, where God's life is imparted to His people, you, 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 you won't find God or life. Not consistently, not deeply, not in a way that leads to complete joy. It will be hit and miss. Maybe the illustration helps. My, my wife is mean on the grill. 
She can grill now. And every once in a while, she just gets a, in a mood. She want to grill. And my job is to open the garage door and to wheel the grill out into the driveway, then to get out the way. And I got real good at my job. We got a gas grill now. We used to do charcoal. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's, there's gas and charcoal ain't the same thing. <laughs> gas is nice because you go out there and you flip the little thing and click, 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 then the flame come up. You ain't all dirty with the charcoal and you can go ahead and start grilling. But you miss the smoky flavor that that charcoal gives. And charcoal is messy and it takes time, but, but it's worth it, man. You wait on that charcoal. You ain't cook your meat too fast, any of that, right? Now, here's the thing about the spiritual life. Some of us want it microwaved when really it's like cooking with charcoal. And here's the thing about spiritual fellowship. If you're thinking about that charcoal analogy, you, 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 the art to sort of having a good sort of grilling experience is piling the charcoal together in the proper way. You don't spread the charcoal out all over the grill. No, you got to get it together. You got to pile it up, right? And then all you need is one flame, one strike of the match, and the whole thing burns together. So it is with Christians. We're not meant to be spread out, disconnected. We're meant to be bunched in together, to be family, to be piled up on each other, and somebody needs to strike the match of God's word so we all burn together. And the wonderful thing about charcoal is as long as it's on the pile, it all burns. It all glows. It's all red. It all gives off flame. Now, all you have to do is remove one charcoal, set it over here to the side, and what happens to it? Goes out almost immediately. It gets all ashy. It's a lot of ashy Christians in the world. Gets cold and gray, doesn't it? It ain't long and the flame's gone. But now I'm going to tell you, you, you can have a fire going with your charcoal. They packed up together, so on and so forth. You can take some charcoals out the bag and they ain't never been lit. And just put them on that fire and they burn too with the rest of the body. So it is with spiritual fellowship. We are meant to be piled onto each other, set on fire with the word of God. That the life of Christ might be burning in us. And this only happens if we're together, beloved. Or to use another analogy. I love potluck. Y'all know I love potluck. <laughs> Spiritual fellowship is like potluck. All of us will make a meal and contribute, right? You at home and you make your little tall salad. Or maybe you make a green bean casserole. Or you cut up some fruit. Or you mails or you buy drinks. <laughs> some of y'all want to make the potato salad listen there's a pastoral committee to qualify people to make the potato salad everybody, everybody can't bring potato salad now we're going to leave that to big mama now <laughs> see sometimes people try and sort of muster the flame of spiritual fellowship with their little lighter of quiet time that's like making a potluck dish and not going to the potluck and thinking you're going to get a full meal just with the one dish you made. No, the point of the potluck is to bring your one dish, add it to the other, and then we all feast. 
That's the point of your quiet time is to have a little fire in you, to have a little burning in you, to be drawing near to Christ through his word and in prayer so that when you gather together with the, with the saints of God, you're part of the spark that ignites it. You ever had a season of dryness in your spiritual life where you've not been meeting with the Lord personally and then you get together with God's people and they start talking about things of the Lord? One of two things happen. Either you start to burn yourself or you feel disinterested because it's been that long since you've talked even by yourself about spiritual things. No, beloved. We want to make our meal at home and bring it to feast with the people of God. We want to be those coals on the fire that we burn together through this fellowship for Christ our Lord. So what is spiritual fellowship? Spiritual fellowship is what happens when the Word of God gives the life of God to the people of God together for their joy in God. Now, what does that have to do with spiritual warfare? That's what we're going to see in verses 5 to 10. Let me give you an answer real quick. Spiritual fellowship keeps us, number one, near God and away from Satan. Number two, in the light and away from darkness. Number three, cleansed by the blood instead of caught in the flesh. Spiritual fellowship keeps us near God and away from Satan, in the light and away from darkness, cleansed by the blood instead of caught in the flesh. I mean, one of the ways for us to understand spiritual warfare is in this imagery of light and darkness and in this dynamic of isolation or togetherness. See, we were meant to separate ourselves from our enemies and to stick close to God. But our enemies try to isolate us from God and the church so they can overcome us alone. They're trying to pull us away from Christ. We are fighting to abide in Christ. And one way we abide, we abide is by spiritual fellowship. So look with me in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And in these six verses, we're going to see three pairs of ideas. And each pair includes a promise and a problem. Each pair gives us something to hold on to, followed by something to let go. The first pair is there in verses 5 and 6. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while We walk in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. Verse 5 gives us what we want to hold on to, the promise. John sums up the whole message of Jesus' ministry and the gospel in this sentence. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. A light there now symbolizes two things. It symbolizes moral purity or holiness, and it symbolizes truth. Here we're being told that God's very nature is that he is good, he is pure, he is holy. And God's very nature as light is that he reveals, and and he reveals what's good, he reveals what's true, he reveals what's holy. And to make it even clearer, John says now, 
In him is no darkness at all. Not one drop of darkness, not one millimeter of shadow. God is perfect in his holiness. My beloved, this means there's never any chance ever that the Father will be the least bit tempted to anything unclean, unrighteous, or unholy. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, what this means is, in part, he will not abide darkness. He will not trifle with sin. So this fact that God is light is terrifying to the sinner, but it's terrific to the saint. And here's why. Why do I say this is something to hold on to? In our warfare, the one person we can absolutely trust without any fear of betrayal is God. You can trust the one who is light and in whom is no darkness. He'll be good to you. He'll be loving to you. He'll treat you in a holy and a pure way. He will never abuse you. He will never abandon you. He will never mistreat you. And beloved, in our spiritual warfare, one of the most basic things we are fighting to hold on to is remembrance of the fact that God is good. That's the first thing the enemy runs at. I mean, you, you, you hit a patch of suffering, you hit a patch of struggling, you hit a patch of difficulty, you hit a patch of, of, of waiting and bearing under the weight of waiting. First thing that, that the enemy runs at is, see, God ain't good. All you have to do is read Job's story. That righteous man was worshiping God and, and Satan wanted to, to destroy him. And, and Satan came at him and took his children and took his homes and his businesses. He, he destroyed everything that Job loved. And, and you know what Job is, is sitting there contemplating? I got to hold on to the knowledge that God is good. And we get that powerful declaration from Job after all of that loss and all of that suffering. His body is wasting away. His wife talking about, why don't you curse God and die? His friends there talking all crazy. Job says this one thing that's holding on to God's goodness, yet though he slay me, I'm going to praise him and trust him and worship him. I'm going to hold on to the goodness of God. The warfare aims right at your knowledge of God's goodness to drive a wedge between you and God. Now, I said there's a promise and a problem. Verse 6 gives us the problem. Notice there what's said in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is the possibility that some folks will say one thing, but we know God, and do another, walk in darkness. And what verse 6 is telling us is that it's impossible to fellowship with God who is light while trafficking in the darkness because he ain't in the darkness. Ain't no two ways about it. Light and darkness cannot coexist. And these are people who are like, as bright as it is outside today, these are people who are like trying to walk home, but only in the shadows. Light's everywhere, 
the knowledge of the goodness and the glory of God is all in creation and proclaimed in the gospel. But don't you know there are some people who want to take the back way, the alley? Because they can dart into the shade and jump into a shadow and try to make their way claiming to know God while ducking and weaving and bobbing and dipping into darkness. Verse 6 says, that's a lie. You can't do that. Light and darkness are irreconcilable. The person who claims to be able to do both those things lie and do not practice the truth. We might call this the problem of, of posing. A kind of self-promotion. Telling others that you know God while living contrary to the commands and the ways and the character of God. Now, beloved, this happens in the church, too, not just among people who are not Christians. It shouldn't, but it does. There are many people who are eager to build a brand, but spend no time building character. There are a lot of people who want reputations without the work. There are a lot of people who want to put forth an image, but lack depth. Some folks are trying to fake it until they make it. What verse 6 says is, all you're doing is faking it. Because you won't make it with the God who is light, saying one thing and doing another. See, to win the war, beloved, we need to hold on to this truth about God and then we need to practice the truth. Notice the second pair, verses 7 and 8. But if we walk in the light, and so it's contrasting now with, with verse 6, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So see the promise of verse 7. In the light is where God is. But now also in the light is where we have fellowship with each other. And in the light is where the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Notice, from all sin. To walk in the light is to obey God, is to have a, a, a manner or a habit or a character of of keeping in step with what God says. And that's our warfare, to stay in the light and not be drawn into the darkness. And the darkness in us was tempt us to, to step out of the light for a minute, but there, there ain't no fellowship with God in the darkness, as we've been saying. And if we want God, then we, we've got to live in the light. And here's the result of that one thing of living in the light. We have fellowship with each other, and at the same time, the blood of Christ is cleansing us afresh. I love that old hymn, Walk in the Light, the beautiful light. This is why it's beautiful. You, you step into the light and you go, oh, you over here too. What's up, dog? You look so good in the light. And as you're in there, in the light, it's not... 
sort of two things in sequence or independent. First, you're coming in light. Then you got a fellowship with the saints. Then maybe you're cleansed. No, the moment you're in the light, simultaneously, we share the life of God in fellowship. And at the same time, the blood of Christ is cleansing us afresh from all our sins, from all our transgressions, from all our rebellion. God is cleansing us, renewing us, making us whole. This means, beloved, if you want to have your guilt cleansed, if you want to have your heart cleansed, if you want to know freedom from guilt, the place to be is in the light and in the fellowship with God's people. But now here's the problem. Sin is sneaky. Sin tells you, look, you ought to be ashamed. Don't you tell nobody that. Sin makes you afraid of what other Christians think. But the other Christians are in the light like, yo, I'm clean. And you're worried about what they think. And, and sin will make us wrongly private. And sin will make us defensive, even though we're guilty. Sin will drive us from fellowship. And when that happens, we feel crippled by the guilt and the shame. You ever notice that? The more you pull out of the fellowship, the more you hide of your weaknesses and your corruptions, the more control they seem to have, the more crippling they seem to be. What we need is to be with the saints in the Word where we experience the cleansing of Christ. So some of us need to stop making fig leaves like Adam and Eve and come more fully into the light. And all of us need to make the Christian church a place where confession and transparency are rewarded by fellowship and reminders of the gospel. Never join a church where you have to fake like you're not a sinner. Never join a church where if someone confesses their fault, confesses their wrong, confesses their struggle, they are ostracized and put on the B team. Never join a church where the leadership acts like it ain't got no sins and no problems and no faults. Join a church where people seem to be able to talk freely about their most personal and vulnerable issues of sin and walk away feeling accepted and loved. That's where you want to be where people can confess their sins and not stay stuck there, but find grace and help and fellowship to live in the freshness of the gospel. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. We come to the supper. We confess our sins. We appeal to Christ for a fresh sense of the cleansing of his blood as we celebrate his broken body and drink the wine that symbolizes his blood. God has left us dramas, plays to reenact what we're thinking about, even in this text, that all of us are sinners. And left in our sin, we're undone, but we have a Savior whose grace is greater than all our sin. And he cleanses us as we come to him. I noticed the problem in verse 8. This is the second problem in the human heart. We want to watch out for it. We might call this problem self-deception. 
So in verse 6, it seems that they were trying to tell other people something that was false to deceive them, that we walk in the light, but they're actually walking in the dark. Now in verse 8, it seems that they are telling themselves the lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Some people respond to their sin with denial. Which, which, when you think about it, is really crazy. Because the only person who might be tempted to think that you ain't a sinner is you. All the rest of us know. And it's even crazier when you think that folk try to deny their sin to God. If I know you're a sinner, and Jane know you're a sinner. And Tommy know you're a sinner. God knows all your sin. God knows it better than all the rest of us. So the person who thinks they are without sin is really, the text says here, without truth. That's what they're missing. And the light produces truth. Reject the light and you reject the truth. Verse 8 says the truth is not in you. So self-deception is a trap. And the trap grows stronger the longer you live in that self-deception. And the longer you live in that self-deception, the longer you're vulnerable to losing the war for your soul. The truth shall make you free. And the truth is we're all sinners, deserving of judgment. And the most fundamental thing to do is admit that. So to win, we need to walk in a light where there's fellowship and there's cleansing. Notice the third pairing, verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Notice the promise of verse 9. It's a beautiful promise. Starts there with the condition. If we confess our sins. Now, confess basically means to agree with God that our sins are wrong and to agree with God that we are wrong. Both those things are important because it's possible in our fallen way of thinking to say, well, yeah, I know that was wrong while retaining a sense that, but I'm good. No, you did the wrong. And the Bible says the wrong came out of your heart. Uh, that means you're wrong, too before a holy God. And so to confess here is to agree with God that our sins are wrong and, and that we are wrong for, for, for committing them and that we deserve God's judgment. And here's the, here's the good news. It's counterintuitive in a world that doesn't really celebrate grace but loves to crush its enemies. The good news is this. For merely confessing sin to God, which he already knows about us. God promises to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For merely admitting what God already knows, God promised to do something we can't do for ourselves. Forgive us and cleanse us. Notice again how complete this is. Of all unrighteousness. 
All of it, past, present, and future. All of it, public and private. All of it, personal and against others, social. All of it cleansed by the God against whom we sin. That's grace, beloved. That's undeserved kindness. And notice, this promise is backed with the guarantee of God's character. Notice what it says there. He is faithful and just. In other words, he, he, is, he is true to his word. He is, he is faithful. He will not break this promise. He will keep this promise every time. And he is just, which means this ain't no shady deal. This ain't too good to be true. This is righteous through and through. God is the just one and the justifier of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no higher authority for God to appeal to other than himself. He is just and the justifier. He is faithful and just to cleanse us just like he promised. Now, there's only one thing that can keep us from this promise. There's only one sin so, so vile that it'll blind our eyes to just how sweet this gift of grace is. And that's self-righteousness. That's pride. That's the problem we see in verse 10. Notice there. If we say we have not sinned, (laughs) so in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, that seems to be pointing at the condition of sin. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, that seems to be pointing to the act of sin. So here's a person who thinks they're perfect. They've not sinned. They're righteous. And the problem with that point of view is, notice, They've gone from self-deception to lying about God. You see what the last part of the verse says? We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, you, beloved, you and I are full of pride, which God hates. If we can, with a straight face, walk around and say we are without sin and we have not sinned, and if God says I'm a sinner, then God's a liar. Really? You think God lying on you? No, everything God says about us is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so the problem is we get too into ourselves and love ourselves so much that we think we're righteous, independent of God. Someone said the theme song of hell is I did it my way. That's what this person in verse 10 is claiming. But the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're described by verse 10, there are two things you need to know. Number one, God's word, that that same word that gives eternal life, the verse says, is not in you. So if you're wondering about whether or not you're a Christian, or you're claiming to be a Christian, but you know you're not living like one, and you're minimizing your sin and saying it's not that bad, the Bible here is saying it just might be the case that God's word, which gives life, isn't really in you. If his word was in you, you would be convinced of your sin. And you would mourn it. And you would hate it. 
we're not talking about perfectionism here. It's not, not, I'm not arguing that if his word was in you, you would never, ever sin. Chapter 2, verse 1 assumes that fact. If, if someone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. No, I'm talking about a hard attitude and a posture that assumes you have no sin to be worried about of any extent. The text says here, you need to recognize that word which gives life is not in you. You've not yet been saved. The first command of the gospel is repent. It assumes our sin. And it commands us to turn away from sin and turn back to God. The first thing you need to do, beloved, is confess your sins and repent of it. Turn from it and turn to God. That's the only hope of being cleansed from your sins. Now, the second thing you need to know, I've already said, is that God is true even if all of us have to be liars. God ain't made no mistakes. And if God calls you a sinner and you die in your sin, that's going to mean eternal judgment in hell. Every verdict in his courtroom is absolutely right. There's no miscarriage of justice in God's courtroom. He's not lacking facts on you. He's not going to be swayed by some argument that you have. His standard is holiness. His standard is light. And he knows who's in the light and who's not. Don't deceive yourself and don't lie on God. Do the same thing. Confess your sins. Repent of them. And put your faith in the one whose blood cleanses you. But that's what Jesus was doing on the cross, and that's what we'll remember in the Lord's Supper. He died on the cross in order to atone for our sins, in order to accept the punishment of the Father that we deserve. All of God's anger was poured out on his Son as a substitute for us. But what Jesus does on the cross and what Jesus achieves in the resurrection doesn't get counted to us if we go on like we don't need to repent and believe in him. It's only effective for us if we swear a war against our sin and darkness and we turn to Jesus as the light and the word of life and the eternal life and trust him for our righteousness and our forgiveness. That's how you win the war. It's by faith in the Son of God and walking with him in faith. And this morning, I want to beg you that if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, that you do that this morning. Don't delay another day, for another day is not promised to you. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not deceive yourself. Do not lie about God. Instead, confess, admit, agree with God that you are a sinner. And know that that's not the worst thing that could be said about you. That is the beginning of your salvation. Admit that you are a sinner and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you as your Lord for his sacrifice to count as your sacrifice and his righteousness to count as your righteousness and the promise in this book which we have been considering is that God is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and you will find yourself in the light.
in the fellowship with God's people and with God where the blood keeps cleansing us forever. If you want to know more about what that means, talk with me after the service. Talk with your Christian friend who brought you. Ask all your questions. Do everything you can to come into the light and to escape your sin. The Lord will save you. He will not turn you away. He is faithful and just. We win this war, beloved. And spiritual fellowship helps us to win this war by keeping us near to God and away from Satan, in the light and away from darkness, and cleansed by the blood instead of caught by the flesh. And so what should we do in order to enjoy the benefits of spiritual fellowship? Let me give you several obvious things that you may be underestimating because we may be underestimating the warfare that we're in. Let me give you several obvious, basic things to commit to as a strategy in winning the war. Number one, hold on to God and practice the truth in community. Hold on to the truth that we know about God from this text and all throughout the Bible. That he is light, that he is good, that he is holy, that he's gracious, that he's kind, that he's loving, that he never does anything wrong. And practice that truth with other Christians. Because see, the difference that being with other Christians makes is it, it, it helps us catch ourselves when we slip in. And please, be with some Christians who will tell you when you slip in. Be with some Christians who will lovingly say, you know, I, I know this is a terrible time right now. But that thing you just said about God, that ain't true of God. Let's go back to the book. Let's think about what God is really like. And let's have this hard situation be interpreted in light of the truth of who God really is. You have friends in your life who will do that for you? You got brothers and sisters in this church who will do that for you? If you don't, pick one. Say, I kind of like you anyway. Let's fight this war together. And, And let's pick one or two more. And let's fight this war together. We need to be in it as a community. Number two, part of what we want to do in the context of those kinds of relationships. Now, just to be real practical, those relationships can be formed in a small group. So if you're not in a small group, join one. If your small group isn't having these kinds of conversations, change the agenda. Right? So join a small group or, you know, if you want to sort of, as I said, pick out a few folks and build a friendship with, do that, right, very practically. And when you do that, number two, commit to intentionally walking in the light. In our Sunday school class this morning, Brother Stephen was, was, was teaching, and we were thinking about sexuality and thinking about sexuality as, uh, see, I'm even making gestures like Stephen, thinking about sexuality, you know, as an expression of our warfare. And, and Stephen made the point, you know, we, we need people in our lives who will, who will ask us the hard questions, not as a game of gotcha, but because we need to be encouraged to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to walk in the light. So if we're married, Stephen gave this illustration, I think it was a great one. If we're married, we need people, we need brothers in our lives who will ask us point blank, are you being faithful to your wife? 
Again, not because they're trying to be inspectors, but because we want to be faithful to our wives. If we're not married, we need people to ask us in the context of being unmarried if we're being faithful to our Lord. If we're being faithful with our bodies and using our bodies and using our eyes and, and, and feeding our minds, things that, that honor the Lord, married, single, young, old. The interesting thing about the Christian life, the walk of the Christian life, it's, it's not just a, a biped kind of thing. It's not something we just do with our own two legs. It's like a three-legged race, a five-legged race. Have you ever been in those in field days in school when you're young, you tie a rope around the leg of another person and you got to kind of make it together and, and run together and learn to get a stride? That's what we want to do as a church. We want to all be in a three-legged race, five-legged race, seven-legged race. We want to be tied up with each other and learn to walk together in the light where we have fellowship with God and where we are consistently experiencing the cleansing effect of the gospel. Number three, let us confess our sins and let his word dwell in us richly. This is why we normally have a prayer of confession in every service. We'll have it at the Lord's Supper in a moment. Uh, That's something we want to do publicly. That's something we want to do privately. That's something we want to do inside of our friendships. And you'll be surprised how liberating, or maybe you won't, maybe you're experiencing this already, but you might be surprised how liberating it is to confess your sins and how freeing it is to hear the other person confess their sin. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there talking with Jesus. Okay, am I going to tell my thing too? <laughs> you know, and you remember 1 John chapter 1, yeah, if I don't confess it, I'm lying, right? I'm, And then you lean into that freedom and together we remind each other of the grace of God and the gospel. We want to be a community built on confession because that's the only way to avoid hypocrisy. That's the only way to avoid pretending. It's the only way to be real. And so we want to confess our sins to one another and let the word of God dwell in us richly. I love how Colossians 3 describes singing. You realize that what what happens up here with Amos and the praise team and as they're singing the truths about God's character and the truths about uh, our lives, that that Colossians 3 says, then the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. We do that when we sing. We do that when we hear and teach and pray and discuss God's word in, in the company of God's people. The word is alive in us. And here's the truth, beloved. The word is always alive. If it seems like it's not, the problem is not the word. The problem is us. And that's an indication we need fellowship all the more. So let me just say in closing a word to someone who might be struggling with even the idea of fellowship and being in fellowship. And there'd be any number of reasons for this. Um, it could just be the case that you're, you're like me. I know you don't believe it, but you're like me and you're an introvert. And um, you just kind of like, most days I'd just rather be alone. I draw energy and strength from being alone and being quiet. Maybe a little Miles Davis in the background in a book, but, you know, I need that in order to be with people. It's just how I'm wired. My wife is opposite. She needs to be with people in order to be with people. I mean, she just feeds on people like Pac-Man, you know. We just, 
It's just different that way. It's just different that way. So maybe you're just an introvert. Or maybe you're listening to your sin. And your sin, Proverbs 18 11, is seeking to, or 18 1, one of those, is seeking to isolate you so you can seek the interests of your sin. And so you don't want to be in fellowship because you don't want the accountability. You don't want the light. John 3 19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So maybe that's you. Or maybe you're just, you've just been out of fellowship so long, you've convinced yourself you don't really need it. You, you've convinced yourself that, you know, I, I can just come to church and hear the word, and after that, you know, tire marks, I'm gone. You've even convinced yourself, I, you know, I don't even hear all that singing, you know, sing too much. I just need that one song before the sermon, and I hear the sermon, and I'm gone. Talking about somebody, y'all giggling. There are many reasons that, that may make fellowship hard or unappealing to you. We haven't began to mention church hurts. As hard or uninteresting or out of practice you may feel, do it anyway. There really isn't a way to be renewed in the fellowship of God's people without fellowshipping with God's people. It's just one of those things that's kind of an irreducible minimum. There's not something else you can do to kind of get you there to then start enjoying it again. No, you have to recognize that we're called into the light with God's people. And that's where we're cleansed and that's where we get life. And you just got to recognize that's where I got to go. My old introverted self is, is sort of leading me to a sinful withdrawing from God's people. My, my sin is trying to coax me away from God's people. My, my fatigue from work or, or from raising children and, 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 and my being out of practice and out of church, all those things are, are disincentives to the one thing that you need to do in order that we might flourish in our warfare against the world of flesh and the devil. And that's come be with God's people and dig into God's word. Put yourself back on the stack of coals and you'll find yourself burning before too long. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the treasure of your word. How you so lovingly and kindly tell us what we need. We praise you in your infinite goodness that you have withheld no truth from us, no no hard truth, no encouraging truth. You've given us the whole counsel. And we thank you that your word makes us alive. It searches us, it binds us up, it sends us out. It heals us, it helps us, it makes us wise. Only help us to have hearts to obey what we learn. Help us to have hearts that are eager, O Lord, to be with you in the light and to be with your people in the light and to be in your word in the light that we might have your life running through us all. Keep us in the light away from darkness. Keep us near to yourself, away from Satan, O Lord. Keep us where the blood continues to cleanse us 
and where we escape our flesh. Give us increased victory in this war, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of concluding our service with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. As I said a moment ago, the supper was given to us by the Lord as a practical help. A help in our warfare, a a help in sustaining the victory that we have in Christ. Before Jesus comes back, the church is called the church militant, the church at war. And every army at war needs a constant supply from their sort of territory out to the front lines of the war. They need a supply chain. We need to get armament. We need to get resources. We need to get food out to the soldiers on the front line. And I want to suggest to you that that's one way of thinking about the Lord's Supper. It's part of how our captain gets to us on the front line the nourishment, the weaponry that we need to continue in this warfare. What we're about to do was established by Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he ate an ancient meal called the Passover with his other Jewish disciples. But he reinterpreted this meal in terms of his own life and sacrifice. So that what once pointed backwards to the exodus from Israel and that night when the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes which had blood on the door sill and spared the firstborn of those homes but, but went to homes that did not have that blood and struck down the firstborn of the land. This meal was looking back to that night when God in his great mercy spared and saved his people from bondage. But Jesus reinterprets it so that it looks forward to what will happen to him in just a matter of days when he would be crucified on the cross and his body would be broken for us and his his blood would be shed for us so that we would escape not an ancient Israelite Passover, but we would escape the death that we deserve because of our sin and be reconciled to God and live forever in his grace. This meal reminds us of Christ's sacrifice and this meal nourishes all those who take it by faith. Here are the words of institution from Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, meaning his death. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in a dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in this meal, we remember and we celebrate what Jesus did that night with his original disciples. And notice this meal was given, Jesus says, for many. That's us. Black, white, Hispanic, Chinese, other Asian groups, Caribbean groups, African groups. The many from around the world, from every tribe and every ethnic group and every language group, from every economic class and every educational background. No barriers to this meal. No barriers to this salvation except our sin. And this meal tells us that Jesus has conquered our sin and that through faith in him, there are no barriers at all for coming to him. And this meal reminds us that we should keep coming to him. Not only the first time when we put our faith in Christ and we were born again and made new creations, but but each time that we would to remember him, to remember his death and proclaim it until he comes again, to come again and again and again when we receive the cleansing of his blood through remembrance of his sacrifice. And that's what we do this morning. We eat this meal by faith. We eat it together as disciples. And we eat it for the cleansing and the life that it gives. It's our custom here as a church that when we celebrate the supper, we do remember that we are one body. We do remember that we are a a family of disciples by renewing our covenant together. A covenant is a set of promises that we make to God and to each other and to ourselves about how we intend to live together as God's people. I think this morning Pastor George is leading us through the covenant. So I invite you guys to stand if you're a member of this church as he comes and Pastor George to lead us through.